This episode of Romaniacs contains some very strong language. If you don't want to hear politicians described in the most forthright terms, or you're listening with anyone who may ask you what the certain words mean, you might want to turn off now. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the podcast that has always felt at home in the European Union, no matter what Theresa May might say. I'm Dorian Linsky and I'm here as always with Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, and Peter Collins, the armchair Poirot of Brexit. Hi Ian and Peter. <laughs> Bonjour mes amis. <laughs> with us today we have a very special guest. We thought it was about time we had an uncompromising hard Brexiteer on the show. Someone who lives, eats and breathes the will of the people and will throw you out of his pub for even suggesting a second referendum. It's Al Murray, the pub landlord. Hello, Al. Welcome to Romania. Hi. Although I, this is me. Um, <laughs> I don't want to. I mean, I mean, imagine actually doing this with me in character. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't want to reveal the magic, but in in in, in real life. Uh, you are actually a treacherous Remainer. Um, well, yes, I suppose I am. I mean, this is the problem is that this is the the horrible, ghastly thing is that you have to say, yes, I am a treacherous Remainer. I am, I am a citizen of the world, and all this bollocks, <laughs> these positions we're being moved into taking, I think it's ghastly. Yeah, it's sort of mad. Well, wouldn't it be fun if we just introduced another divide into British society and everybody has to choose well, a or camp? Well, or it's the old divide. I mean, I, at Christmas, to try and sort of get my head around some of this, I read Robert Toombs' The English and Their History, you know, um, which is a conservative history of English, England, Who's in the title, and and he go, basically suggests that kind of every 70, 75 years or 50 years, there's a moment where the two halves of of England have this sort of awful rending point where they re-establish their division and they go, actually, no, we're divided on this, thank you very much. Mm. And there's us who feel this way. And it's essentially, it's Whig and Tory, Mm. if you want, if you want to call it anything. Every so often there's this horrible moment, usually because the Tory party thinks, right, what do we do now? (laughs) Or how can we possibly come up with a reason for us staying in charge? Because they're bereft of ideology, they have to come up. You know, that's not their, that's not their thing. They have to come up with these sort of these sort of props, these manoeuvres to sort of uh, justify their position. And having read that, I sort of felt very sort of resigned to what happened last year. That um, you know, it's the corn laws all over again. It's protectionism. It's it's all these things all over again. It's it's 1688 all over again. It, this just keeps happening. Our misfortune is to live through one one of these that's sort of been done deliberately as a piece of Tory party management rather than anything else. Is that a coherent answer? Is that That's a good <laughs> answer? That's one <laughs> Happy with that. So presumably when the referendum came up, you knew what position the pub landlord was going to well, take. Well, I mean, then, he's, it's been really interesting because, you know, he's now in full be careful what you wish for territory because he never really, uh, he never really knew what it was he was annoyed about, like I think <laughs> <laughs> lots of people. And, and I mean, I've, the, the thing I've had in the show in the last year, I've built in this idea that he's creepingly suspicious that what actually happened was we were led up the garden path, split down the... I'm, this is the quote from the show. What actually happened last year is we were led up the garden path, split clean down the middle, and the people that did that to us, it turns out they don't know what they're going to do next. The shower of useless cunt. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the message of the show is hashtag don't be a cunt, right? Because, because that's what it... It strikes me that leave in the Tory party was which bit of the Tory party you're in, which bar you drank in, which tribe you were within within the Tory party, which is, of course, how politicians distinguish themselves from each other and jostle for position. They'd never, while sat in that bar, come up with what on earth it was going to fucking be. They'd never put any meat on the bones of anything beyond up yours to laws. And I wish they had, because then this wouldn't feel so sort of needlessly frivolous. If there was a plan, at least, then you'd be able to engage with it beyond... Why the hell have you done this? Rather than we'll do great global trade and we'll be a global player again. But there's nothing beyond that. And that, that's the thing that I find so fantastically irresponsible. Agreed. <laughs> you know, yeah, it won't surprise you to learn. I would love to know what they're going to do, but, but, and, but they don't seem to know. And that's, that, come on, this is politics, this is important. You know, this, this, this is the sort of thing I've, in a way, more annoyed about than the idea of leaving the EU, is that they haven't got any, they, where is it? What's the plan? Yeah. Apart from David Davis gets to be Prime Minister for a quarter of an hour and then crashes out. <laughs> and the, the lies are very revealing, because uh, I 
recently Jacob Rees-Mogg tweeted figures on the economy, I think maybe on manufacturing, and said, well, so much for the basic problem. And they were figures from 2015. Yeah, yeah. And you just think, either you're an idiot, and I don't think he is. I mean, not in that sense. Yeah, Intellectually yeah. an idiot. Or you're deliberately misleading people. And if you're deliberately misleading people with the wrong figures, that suggests that the truth but what is, are the, is not good. Well, which leads you to the next question. What do they actually want? What's the outcome that, that Jacob Rees-Mogg actually wants from leaving the EU? What is the sunlit uplands that we're being offered? What is it? And he can't tell you. And then you've got the likes of Patrick Minford saying, well, manufacturing will go. Obviously, we'll get rid of manufacturing. What? <laughs> Why? Who's, who does that benefit? Surely that will result in an awful, a bigger burden on the welfare state. And if you're a Tory, why would you be, why would you want that? You know, that surely you don't want that. That's the last thing you want, you know, uh, if you're a small state. It's the fact that they can't get all these ferrets in the bag together, other than, as far as I can work out, we don't like the, I don't like the EU. It's reassuring to think your enemies have a plan. Like, yes, even exactly. if you hate the plan. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I'd like them. I wish there was a plan. I wish. I wish it was more than Daniel Hannan, sort of Paddington Bear view of um, Englishness. Because then you'd be able to go. All oh, right. Okay. It's going to be fine. But at the moment, it's the, they're walking off a cliff. Um, let alone us. Leading question: Are you as baffled as we are about the silence of the Lambs on both of the major parties? You've got, you know, as I keep pointing out, a majority of Conservative MPs in the current Parliament. Mm. Uh, originally said they voted Remain, yeah. including Theresa May. And likewise, on the Labour bench, you have a large number of pro-Europeans who yeah. see the good side in the European Union. And yet, when we had Gina Miller on the show the other week, she was saying she talked to these people and they keep saying, oh, it's not time yet. We can't well, there always we can't something really will come up, isn't yeah. it? It's something will come up, politics, yeah. that's all it is. And also, they don't want to get monstered by the print media who are still ready to, you know, enemies of the people you. I mean, I think, you, you, in a way, you kind of have to admire... The Leave side are better at the politics, are better at the presentational politics. They're, they're better at saying this is the will of the people. That, they've done all that really expertly. In a way, I, I feel like, well, we're going to have to do it now because they've made that case so compellingly that it'd be very difficult politically to, to go back on that. So I kind of feel that that die is cast now, unfortunately. It's when your wife says, well, I'm going to leave, I, I think we need to break up. Once that's been said out loud... You, there's no way your marriage is ever going to be the same again. I mean, Second you know, referendum. <laughs> well, but speaking, but speaking, from ex, speaking from experience, <laughs> right? you know, um, when that moment comes, that yeah. changes everything about your relationship. And yeah. so here we're doing what they're doing. We're talking about internal British politics rather than, you know, these, <clears throat> either the 27 nations or the bloc. And it's this fascinating thing that Florence, why was it in Florence? We don't know. The Florence speech was a negotiation within the Conservative Party, done in public. And that's all you've got. It's, it's a t- going to be a two-year, since the triggering Article 50, a two-year internal negotiation inside the Tory party and the factions that control Tory party opinion. That's it. We talked to Al a bit more later, not least about the time he stood against uh, Nigel Farage <laughs> and Thanet during the 2015 general election. But first, as Al mentioned, it's been quite an odd week since we recorded the last podcast. We've had May's speech in Florence where she accepted a transitional period and the apparent fizzling of Boris Johnson's hard Brexit leadership bid. And then the Labour Party conference where delegates refused to make Brexit one of its hot topics. We'll talk more about those things in details later. Do you get the feeling, Ian, that common sense might be uh, asserting itself? Yeah, there's a little bit. I mean, I, I thought of, I had a more sympathetic approach towards the May speech than most of the people in the press. I mean, most, most Remainers were attacking it, most Leavers were attacking it. And, you know, we're, we're in this period where basically there's a construct around political speeches now, which is just, a, just an absolute load of waffle at the start and at the end. But then right in the middle, you'll be delivered some very, very specific sentences, which are usually said over the heads of the audience to either Brexit geeks in the newspapers to take the code mm. or guys at the commission. And in May's case, it was to the commission. And she basically said, you know, on transition, exactly almost what, what Barnier said the day before about his mandate from the commission, which is basically, we'll take it all. If we get transition, we'll take every rule, we'll take all the freedom of movement, we'll take all the European Court of Justice stuff, we'll take all of it. No more of this bespoke transitional, none of that kind of, you know, blue skies nonsense. We will just take it all. That was a very clear message she, she delivered to them. She didn't even put a two-year limit on it specifically. She sort of said it's probably around two years. So even there was, was sort of seeing more open. And then on the money, 
where she used almost exactly the phrasing that they had demanded of basically saying, look, we, we, we're, we're going to provide the money, was really where she said, we might quibble over the figures, but all of this, you know, we're not going to be doing anyway. That all went out the window. And all of that, look, it doesn't get you there. And it doesn't necessarily mean she can keep her cabinet with her. She's still got to do a lot more work with the Europeans. But that is a glimmer of sort of reason and of causation and of appreciation of reality, just piercing the curtains of Downing Street for the first time. So, yeah, I think, you know, this week we are in a different position to where we were this time last week. Um, we'll talk more about uh, Florence and the Tories, new children's show. Um, <laughs> before we get started, we want to give you some terribly exciting news about the Romaniacs Patreon appeal, where you can pledge money to support us in our vital work of undermining democracy. Peter, explain all. Yes, last week we had launched an appeal for Romaniacs on Patreon. This is a crowdfunding site where you can pledge anything from a couple of dollars a month up to the gold-plated metropolitan elite tier of a thousand a month or more. A big hello to any billionaires listening in. <laughs> it's all listed in dollars because it's an American website, but you can pay in good old British pounds, so no. Nigel Farage will be happy. Well, maybe. In return, you get fabulous and provocative Romaniacs t-shirts, bags, mugs and so on, plus first dibs on tickets for any live events that we manage to get together one day. We've been amazed and delighted with the response. More than 100 people pledged to support us in the first four days alone. We're extremely grateful and, as promised, we'll be name-checking our supporters later in the show. If you would like to help us grow and reach more people, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast. There are special extras for the first 200 pledges. And while you're at it, don't forget Romaniacs.com, where you'll find all of our previous shows, including the episodes we did with Gina Miller and Nick Cohen. So that's patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast and Romaniacs.com. They're the biggest things on the internet since cats that look like Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Peter, the Stephen Toast of Romaine in fine voice. Back to Theresa May's speech. The FT unlike Ian, not a fan, called it 45 minutes of repetitive platitudinous abstraction. Can, can we just That's clarify. fun to read. It is. I bet you enjoy that. I'd just like to make it I'm not actually a fan. <laughs> Are you arguing that it was actually 30 minutes of repetitive platitudinous <laughs> abstraction with like 15 minutes in the middle? <laughs> Nevertheless, it was an absolute pleasure to see hard Brexiters losing their minds over the speech. They denounced the Prime Minister as Theresa the Appeaser. White nationalist warm-up act Nigel Farage called it a huge two fingers up to 17.4 million people who voted Brexit. Ian, obviously, Farage tears are tasty. Mm. How much sort of uh, cautious celebration are we allowed? I find it, you see, the, the question you always want to ask yourself is basically who wins here? You know, coming out of the speech, you're like, is this good for leave? Is it good for remain? Really, what this is, is ju- it's just we're going to have more rounds to punch one another. That's really all that it means. It's not necessarily good for either side. But there is a slight distinction in, in how I might operate, I think. So, you know, I, I think it is now more likely, if she can hold everything together, and given what Boris Johnson has been doing since she made the speech, that's not necessarily the case, that she can, she can actually deliver on this. What the speech did is it made it more likely that we will leave in March 2019. I think before that, if you give up on the compromise solutions, and we're running out of time for compromise solutions, you've really got... Some people in Brussels say we've already run out of time. You know, there's definitely by next spring, you're out of time. So once that period ends, you then go up into sort of 2019 with the the two extreme proposals on either side. On the one hand, no deal. And on the other hand, basically remain or arguably try to extend Article 50. Now, if you're a high stakes gambler, remainer, you might like the way that sounds, because I think it's, it's honestly much more likely that any government with even a hint of sanity would step back from the brink with the reality of no oh, deal. Prob- comes there's up. your problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, yeah. and you may be right. You may be right. But nevertheless, if it shifts over to give us more years, and I don't think two would be enough. I mean, Canada took seven. That's much more simple than what we're talking about here. So you'd probably be renewing and renewing no matter how many double locks she says that she's going to put on that thing. Then you get a chance to argue for getting back in there. Now, you're technically out of the EU, but nothing will have changed at all. The Europeans may object to us doing that, or they may not. But nevertheless, you're suddenly playing the long game where I think a bunch of opportunities open up. So honestly, is it good for leave or remain? Kind of equally. It's just that we're shifting the way the board is set up. And of course, if it's a two-year transition, we're in the next, assuming we get that far, we are, we are in the next election campaign, if we haven't had it already. Yes. That opens the possibility of... If labour sh- labour shifts more in the meantime, we don't we don't know where they're going to end up either. And you've also got this this other thing I, that's, that struck me as uh, at least interesting coincidence is um, Emmanuel Macron, president of France, making this speech about the grand reformed EU that he sees in the future that Britain could rejoin. Mm. And it's an incredible speech. Yeah, it, yeah. Now, obviously, he's talking about the euro area having a common budget and essentially merging into one big euro mess, which of course you know 
Brexiteers wouldn't particularly like. But he's basically talking about solidifying the idea of a two-tier Europe, that we have the core, which is the Euro members, which have a common budget. They presumably have to have some political structure that would set this budget, and they'd have to have more common taxes, even if they had some local variation, but they have to much more alignment than now. But then you explicitly have this outer tier. Britain would presumably be the largest member of this outer tier, and that would have the eternal promise of no more ever closer union. That would satisfy those who worry that it's all a big federal project. Obviously, it's just one speech by one EU leader, but if something of that nature came along, it could actually work. It's felt throughout like the Brexit situation complements the Merkel-Macron situation. The Merkel-Macron one is consolidation around the Eurozone. Everyone recognises the two-speed Europe, but they've been talking about this stuff for ages. I think there's a story to tell in Britain. It, now, it may, be, you know, it may be in a year from now, it may be in five years from now, it may be in ten years for a return if everything really goes tits up. Nevertheless, the story is about British leadership in the outer tier of among the countries that want an arm's length relationship that aren't comfortable with ever closer union don't want to consolidate in the eurozone but do want to keep a sort of transactional economic relationship where there's a lot of freedom of trade and the people that kind of thing that is a story that can work here and i think it's a story that fits britain's disposition and actually is a positive story to tell about where it might end up rather than the typical remainder thing which is just we will salami slice away your arguments until there's nothing but bloody stumps left that's a bit of a mixed metaphor um, and, and not a particularly pleasant one <laughs> You need to get salami somewhere else. <laughs> Limbs made of salami. Okay. Um, no, not that one ran away with me. Al, did, did you settle down with a cold beer to, to watch 45 minutes of Theresa May? No. Um, I, was, I was at Wolverhampton University picking up a, an honorary doctorate, actually, so we didn't bother with it. Being the, being That's the, quite being a good the academics. But yes. it was quite interesting because the, because the talking to the vice chancellor there, he's, he's basically saying, well... Ugh, Fuck funding, you know. Ah! <laughs> um, as a vice chancellor, he's a politician, you know. The big, running a big organisation like that is profoundly political, and he's saying, "Well, you know, we'll survive." But and, and this is kind of my feeling about this whole thing. We'll, of course, we'll survive. We're we're essentially a rich country. We'll take the blows, all that. We'll survive. But why go through this? I mean, ah, it was basically the the feeling. And then and then I was talking to lots of history people who are all you know all very gloomy about it. When, when you get Brexiters going, well, you know, we survived the Blitz. And it was like, but we didn't, like, vote for the well, Blitz. So they, start, they started it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, it was something we had to sort of put up with, but it very much was not our idea. Well, and also, um, also <laughs> if we can digress minutely, a big part of, I think, the, the, some of the mindset that's gone into Brexit is the idea that during the Blitz we stood alone. It's garbage. The, the, the British Empire was the biggest uh, economy in the world, uh, we had 400 million Indian people at our disposal that we, that at some point had things not worked out, would have surely been here in Europe fighting the Germans. It's chuff. It's nonsense that we stood alone. We didn't stand alone. We had this enormous thing behind us and backing us. But it's, that's the, one of the things that's fed in, you know, us against the, us against the bloody Germans. Not to it's, mention all the Polish fighter pilots. Well, well, well yeah, before we, before we even get into that, mm. if you look at the, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, how rich Britain was in 38, 39, buying, buying rifles for cash from the Americans, buying fighter planes for cash from the Americans, not on Lend-Lease, none of that stuff. The only reason Chamberlain declared war in 39 is because he thought, yeah, we can do this, we've got no problem here, this is fine, we've, we've got the muscles to take on Germany and we've got the stuff to do it. So when people go, oh, what a blitz and we stood alone, no, we, no, no, it's much, much, much more complicated than that and it's a, a, a representation that doesn't do us any favours when you think about it. I mean, the war always falls into this, for me, always falls into this problem category. You know, three million Chinese people killed during the Second World War? No one knows about that. Um, it's all about us and the sticking up in the, in the blitz. It's, it's, it's <laughs> fine, we did stick up in the blitz, and it was an extraordinary thing that we achieved that, but a lot else happened elsewhere. You know, you, you know and, it, yeah. and it's silly to isolate it, and certainly 75 years later, 77 years later, to still be squeezing everything through that prism is, mm. is basically ridiculous. Well, in a way, I'd rather have... Theresa May's kind of deftly uh, approach to political speech than Boris Johnson in that oh, world. Yeah. He would be giving the full-on kind of like rah-rah British bulldog. Yeah, reckons he's Churchill's shtick. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, so I didn't watch the speech. Why was it in Florence? Because it, w- w- it was absolutely no reason for that whatsoever. I mean... <laughs> 
She flies everyone over. Apparently, they invited all these, you know, sort of European leaders to come, and they just they, they didn't even bother going. Right. She stands. I mean, she takes. <laughs> she stands in front of this sort of blue gray screen yeah. with some words that you just think like you could have done this anywhere. But, you know, it didn't really accomplish anything, but it was sort of spoke volumes. Because that's, this is part of a, of a long story of the Tories giving up on any of their European alliances, you know, which, which starts with David Cameron mm. putting out a European People's Party, this, the typical centre-right grouping in the European Parliament, and just constantly associating themselves with these fringe elements, including eventually Alternative for Deutschland, who yeah, performed, yeah. you know, much better than was expected in the German elections. And now, you know, she's up there. She's got no interest in Europe. She's got no contacts in Europe. She's got no alliances that she can use in Europe. Yeah. And this has been the case throughout Brexit. They burned all of those diplomatic contacts. And that's been much, much more difficult. And she cut a very isolated figure up there in Florence, which, as you say, she completely pointlessly went to. She might have just released all of this stuff on a press release. She should have done that Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> thing where you, you have to deliver, you have to address the camera standing in front of the most famous buildings in wherever you are. <laughs> And just had her, like, popping up beside a fountain or something <laughs> to do the next bit. So uh, what does this mean within the Tory party? Who's up, who's down in terms of May, Hammond, Johnson? It seems like a lot of shifting sands. I don't think we're any clearer. I mean, Boris didn't make a great success of his 4,000-word intervention, to say the least, but that doesn't mean, you won't, doesn't mean you won't come back. I mean, you know, he is indefatigable in that respect, that he will have another go. And of, of all politicians, he's very good at saying there's a movement over there. I think I'm going to put myself at the head of it. So w- whatever nasty fallout comes out from the next stage of, of the talks, when you know, perhaps when we're told that there's still not sufficient progress to move to the next stage, and then the, the Brexiteers are saying, we can't stand this any longer... If there's a we can't stand this any longer movement, well, he's your naturally him and him and Jacob Rees-Mogg perhaps as as a duo. He did issue a couple, didn't he? So first of all, he he waited a couple of days and then he fired off this sort of shot, which basically said, "Look, fine for transition, but we won't pay into the budget, and we're not going to accept any rules, and there won't be freedom of movement." Which is just another way of saying there'll be no transition. Mm -hmm. So you know that that was clearly him basically trying to cut another angle. Then his friends, you know, in inverted commas, started putting out stories to the press saying he talked her out of signing up to, to a full Norway EEA thing, which I just find completely unbelievable. I, just, I don't believe that for a second, that she would have signed up to that sort of thing. And I don't believe that if she had, he would have been able to talk her out of it. Can you imagine Boris Johnson talking you out of anything? No, well, life. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting to be in the room with Boris Johnson. <laughs> Absolutely. The only hope for a Norway type option is if we accidentally fall into it by some fortunate accident at the end of a, a long period of chaos. The idea that Theresa May was actually going to go in there and propose it, was, that's just beyond our wildest fantasy. She's, yeah, she's never had that kind of bravery, you need to accept freedom of movement, you know, yeah, exactly. she, she just, she doesn't have that, she's not going to be able to do that. But, you know, this, this should be, and it reads like Philip Hammond having some success around the cabinet table. It's a more realistic proposition, it's still not quite there yet, like I said, two years is not enough time, but it's a more realistic proposition. And then, of course, I think we will talk about Labour later. But, you know, people like Keir Starmer can can look at themselves, I think, quite proudly in the mirror at the moment. Just thinking they shifted the Labour position. The Tory position starts shifting towards the Labour position. And that opens up more space for the Labour position to shift to an even more reasonable perspective as as these trains keep on jogging along in response to the, the reality of political gravity. I'm sure they were delighted to read the extract from Tim Shipman's new book. Mm. I don't know how he <laughs> writes these books so fast. I know. It seems insane. Where you had Hammond, Amber Rudd and David Davis all kind of plotting immediately after the election, which is, somehow makes her seem even weaker than she did before. But how could they not? You know, there, there was nothing. It would be weird if those text messages weren't going around that morning because it, it seems such, such demonstrably true that she, she had to go. I think we basically have to, we have to reappraise the way that we look at political parties. When it comes to Labour and when it comes to the Tories, these are not pyramid structures with a singular purpose, with a singular vision. They are collections of fiefdoms with little power centres all pushing to control the party line, in the Tory case, to take it over altogether. You know, and you see this across Labour as well. I mean, look at the Labour conference. There's loads of them, including, you know, Kate Hoey's rather lonely, let's make UKIP in the middle of the Labour Party sort of thing. <laughs> as well as, you know, the people that are anti-freedom uh, of movement, on the one hand, those who are pro it, all the different sides. In the Tories, you have, you know, Philip Hammond for the high regulation, we're going to ultimately keep lots of our standards at the same place as the EU. You have Theresa May, who is just, you know, some kind of meat puppet that can be controlled by whoever can get closest to her. You then have David Davis, who has at least some sort of sense of, of being the sort of business end of this. Boris Johnson, who's only real conviction is that Boris Johnson should be Prime Minister 
and Liam Fox, who was the one appealing across the Atlantic to the Americans to try and preemptively set standards at a lower level to make a European arrangement almost impossible. And all of those power centres are jumbled up together. The reason it looks like there's no real coherence there is because there is no coherence there because there is no power structure. Going around the table then, who do we think is going to be Prime Minister this time next year? Theresa May. She's going to sweat it out. I think you're right. I think the last week's events have proved that Hammond's being heard at the moment. And he's thinking, like we said a moment ago, we're into the next electoral cycle by the time, if there are consequences. You know, because after all, there's been no preparation for no deal. No one's buying land in Dover and building mm. customs centres and hiring customs people and setting up IT systems. We know how good governments are at that, right? None of that's happening. So he's obviously thinking there's an election down the line and if the economy is gurgling down a plug hole because of a no-deal situation or because, he's, or because there isn't a, a picture to look at for business to plan around, apart from Boris, who just can't help himself, I think if you're in the top tier of the Tories, you're going to leave her in place. And then after the next election, that's when she'll, she'll go. I mean, also, if, if they've got a preservation instinct to not let Corbyn in, because if the Tory party's other job is to firewall against socialism if there is a semblance of how they of that as their uh, as their sort of guiding force then now's the time for them to to, to do it because you've you you've got this you know you, you listen to mcdonald's speech this week there's lots of state planning and all this all the stuff that the tories say they hate in that and labor doing really well so i mean i think it'll be may i think if you're the tory party you sweat it out and she'll be in until the next election at the end of the five-year cycle. Well, I would say Theresa May as well, but and I also wonder whether even on the Labour side, whatever they might say for public consumption, yeah. it suits Jeremy Corbyn and co, all of his supporters, to have this weak Prime Minister in yeah. place and not have this renewal that we might get. You can imagine if Boris does take over and lead, leads the party to the right in a sort of rebellion against um, whatever. I mean, in a way, her weaknesses are strength in this situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, like, like, but like so many things in all of this story, you know, the EU's weakness was its strength. It can't actually tell you what to do governmentally. And its strength is its, is its weakness also because it looks powerful. So people were able to project against it. It was powerful. And all of these contradictions are the, where this is all fallen out. And I think you're absolutely right. May's strength is her weakness because who knows what's next? I think... Politically, we've had a lot of who knows what's on the other side of this change and it being worse than people imagined. <laughs> so I think she'll be in place until until the next... And they're going to sweat it out for five years. I'm not sure she's going to hang on that long, but I do think in a year, because she can get... Things can get worse, she can get weaker. This is not, I don't think, a great time for some, you know, a very ambitious person to be taken over. Mm. Ian, do you want to kind of puncture the cosy... Metropolitan consensus around me. <laughs> Very rare that we do such a thing. Look, I can't see her making it all the way until the next general election. I do think that they will want her in place past March 2019 so that she can be the human shield for all of the horror that involves delivering Brexit. And then someone would, would probably try to get rid of her. My question is also, can the Tories really make it the five years? Now, clearly they want to. They will try to replace her and have a new leader in. And as you sort of alluded to earlier, you get a boost after that. I mean, even, you know, John Major, who's not the most charismatic man in the world, got a boost. Gordon Brown, who's not the most charismatic man in the world, got a boost. Short-lived though it was and easily forgotten. So it's possible that'll change things. But I think ultimately you've got to look at the numbers in the Commons. Now, the government isn't doing anything at the moment. It's not doing anything on education, nothing on crime and justice, nothing on health. But it is trying to do Brexit. Although what exactly it's trying to do is entirely unclear. But there's still some meaty, meaty bills there, like seven or eight bills that will basically change the face of the country. Now, how many of those need to go down? How many of those would need to be voted down? One, two, three, before you can actually legitimately say, well, look, the, the, you know, this government does not have confidence of the House. And then suddenly the sort of dynamics, the, the machine-like way that the British Constitution operates will drive, I think, that government out of power. The question is... Will it lose those votes? Because Tory MPs, even the critical ones, we've been talking about this a lot in recent weeks, you know, have shown again and again that when it comes to what's best for the country or keeping the Tories in power, they will vote to keep the Tories in power. Even the ones that are supposedly, you know, very liberal, very constitutionally minded will hold ranks. Will that maintain when we get to the business end of Brexit, when it becomes really quite emergency like? Will it maintain, you know, in two years from now? That is the part that's not clear to me. And that's the bit where I think the government. But I think fall. that's when you'll see the, the will of the people rhetoric ramped up mm. and those MPs not wanting to get monstered. And I mean, I really think that that's been the really interesting thing in the last year is, is how successful that, you know, you've got clearly Labour MPs who've been voting with the government on this because they feel I can't go back to my constituency and say, you're yeah. wrong, I know what's best. 
we'll be talking about the Labour conference later, but let's turn to the only person in the room so far who has direct experience of standing for Parliament. <laughs> in 2015, Al Murray stood in the constituency of South Thanet against reclusive friend of the disadvantaged, Nigel Farage. <laughs> standing on the Free United Kingdom Party, or FUCP, Al won a creditable <laughs> 318 votes, a sound base from which to build. He trounced the Manston Airport independent candidate and also those from the We Are the Reality Party and the Al Zababis Nation of Oog. Yeah. Was it fun, Al? Did you enjoy it? Was, it was uh, 75% fun, I would say. I mean, we did it, and this is the interesting thing, we did it because we thought it would be funny, and uh, that's the only reason. Um, I didn't do it because I'm David Cameron's first cousin, or that the EU <laughs> siphoned money through the BBC <laughs> to UK TV to a programme that we made at the time. As you, if you go online, as you may discover, um, we did it because we thought it would be funny. And I'd written, I mean, actual fact, the year before I was touring a show that was all about politics, because of Russell Brand doing his foreign politics, which I thought was hilarious, but probably not, probably not the way he intended. It was really like hilarious. So I thought, well, the pub landlord fancies a slice of that action. So I would do a. Sh- the show had a lot of stuff about politics in it, and it had a. The, the tag was, you know, the nation's ready for a man waving around a pint, offering common sense solutions. You know, like, <laughs> and so uh, we ran as a, a gag, but we set the party up properly. So the party was registered properly with the with the um, electoral commission and all that sort of thing, and we did all that. We did all that properly, and we got to. Uh, UKIP f- initially tried to stop us using a logo. They tried to stop us using the acronym. I mean, it was really interesting. Farage, on the face of it, said, "At last, some proper um, competition in the in the constituency and all this sort of thing." And started by laughing it off. But then we immediately we got stuff trying to get us barred from running immediately, which was kind of interesting, really, because I thought the idea was that anyone could run and it didn't matter why they were running and mm. all those sort of things that are kind of at the centre of how elections work. But, yeah, it was 75 percent fun. The 25 percent of it not being fun was the abuse was the I mean, although I'm I'm not one of those people who flounces off Twitter. I'm quite happy if people are, I don't mind if people are rude to me. It was the sort of volume of it and the persistence of it, and how personal it all was. And we ran a joke campaign. There's no, you look at our manifesto, it's 12 gags. There's no other way of looking at it, <laughs> right? The, 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 the videos we did, there's no other way of looking at them as they're, they're the satirical routines. Mainly, I mean, what, what happened is we actually ended up taking the piss out of the Labour campaign more than UKIP won. In fact, we, we studiously avoided it being about UKIP, we studiously avoided it about being Nigel. Um, because we wanted it to be about the whole thing, you know. So when Labour would tweet, we pledge 2,000 doctors and 10,000 nurses, we'd say, we pledge 2,001 and 10,001 <laughs> in your face, right? <laughs> because, because that's how desiccated and uh, d- decayed political debate had got in the, you know, the last election but one. But it was, I mean, the, the thing is, the British claim they have the greatest sense of humour in the world, and that's because we can laugh at ourselves. But we can't fucking laugh at ourselves. And we certainly, a lot of people do not have the greatest sense of humour in the world. Well, Nigel Farage seems like somebody who would just sort of laugh. You make a joke at his expense, and he'd be like, ah, and then sort well, of lean in and go, I will destroy you. Well, that's how, that's, that's basically, I mean, by the, you know, by the middle of the campaign, he's on Mar going, well, you know, he's just another one of the metropolitan elite and all this sort of thing. And you think, just laugh it off, mate. You'll come over better if you laugh it off. However, I have a... I mean, it was very interesting doing it, and we'd go around the constituency and you'd meet people, because we did a fair bit of that. We had a guy, you know, you'd meet people who go, we, we don't want him to win here because then Thanet will be UKIP central and seen as, you know, xenophobia central and all those things, and we don't want that to happen here. We really don't. But there's a bit of me that feels if he'd won that seat, Cameron would have been able to go, look, there's the will of the people, one MP... There you go, you're, you keep a representative now and not have to do a referendum and Farage would have been in Parliament properly isolated, you know, flailing about on his own because it's difficult, isn't it? You know, his only buddy would have been Carswell and we know how, well, you know, they'd have been sat opposite ends of the opposition benches <laughs> and I kind of think it would have, it, it maybe would have drawn the sting from all of this so maybe I made a terrible error by drawing attention to that constituency. <laughs> You're so right about it's such a, there's such a disparate sort of uh, image really between the, the sort of the bonhomie of, of the Farage thing oh, yeah. ha, 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 and then behind the scenes just the, the machine and yeah. the machine works because I remember I covered that election in that seat they were the only ones that were char- they basically seemed to be keeping a register of people who were invited to the debates I mean yeah. he refused to go on a platform to debate most of his, his other competitors yeah. Labour the Tory guy 
to get in was almost impossible. Every other sort of party spoke to me. I remember trying to get hold of the UKIP guys. They wouldn't pick up their phones. Well, they did the first time and then they didn't any other yeah, yeah. time. I went knocking on the door. Impossible to get hold of them. It's a real, such a distinction between between how cheerful he seems in public and then actually how UKIP operates. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, certainly on, on election night when we... Because <laughs> I, I had a show in Dartford, so we turned up uh, uh, after that, got the bus up after that, watching the watching the on a terrible internet connection, watching the exit part or not the exit part, you know, the hanging around coverage where they're waiting for ten o'clock. Okay. We got to the Winter Gardens, which I know from working there. I know I know the place really well from playing it, so it's quite odd to see it in a completely different context. So they're sort of banqueting tables, and and uh, I remember on arriving, the Tories were cockahoot because they knew they'd won. Labour were despondent because they, they felt they'd been abandoned by central office. And Will Scobie, was a, his father's a local councillor. They're, lo- they're local. They're from there. They're not, you know, and I had a lot of kippers going, oh, you're some bloke from London turning up to grandstand in, in Thanet. How disgraceful you think, hmm, I wonder who else is doing that. <laughs> you, know, you know, so they were despondent about what was happening. But the UKIP table was like a scene from Downfall. You know, they're, they're all heads on the table. <laughs> well, because... Because he'd said it was downfall. He'd said he was going to quit. He'd said that was going to be the end of it. And they, the thing is, they all believe him. That's the thing with 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 the with those 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 party faithful. They believe everything Nigel says. So when he said he, if I lose this seat, I'll quit, they be- believed it. But it was a funny old night. And then Nigel, but he b- behaved really badly at the uh, at the end because he walked off after he did his speech. He didn't wait for everyone to do their speech. He didn't wait on the platform for everyone to do their bit, which which is the form. You know, Craig McKinley made his speech and Nigel did his and, and buggered off and went off and did interviews. And it, and it just felt, that felt more like what he's about than anything else. He's here to use it. He's there to, that election was about him. It wasn't about anything else. What, were you happy with 318? Yeah, of course. I mean, I didn't want anyone to vote for me. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean we, we had a, in, in the group of us doing it, we, you know, in the, and the coach on the way down, I said, oh, probably about 700, I expect. Um, and then other people say, no, you're going to get like 15. Uh, uh, 318 was fine. And, it, and it's a it's a cabalic number. Um, I can't remember who it is. I think it's um, Abraham or someone or one of the heroes of the Old Testament picks 318 men at some point. So it's got to, you know, if you're really into conspiracy theories, there it is. They didn't There's know it. what they were signing up for when they crossed <laughs> next to Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was a really interesting experience. And I also thought... It had all the symptoms of the way a lot of the of what was to come and what's been to come. I mean, the kippers who were angry with me and would go on about who my family are and go on Wikipedia and look at who my family are and, you know, mind read me from that. Their behaviour is identical to the people on the Corbynite left. They're indistinguishable from each other. Don't diss the leader. You're from the wrong bit of society to be entitled to opinion. You're not allowed to joke about this. Mm. You're not allowed an opinion. It's identical. It's, I think that's really, really interesting. It's completely indistinguishable. And if you say to one person on the left, if I'm arguing with one of those people on Twitter, I go, oh, you sound just like the kippers. They can't see it. They melt down. They can't see mm. it. It, it, it. It's really interesting. And after a while, I mean, especially with the Brexit stuff after Corbyn won, yeah. they started sharing the same memes, oh, yeah, the same yeah, yeah, Brexit yeah. memes. And yeah. you're like, oh, it's finally happening. You know? yeah. Yeah, the yeah, solar yeah. eclipse has arrived. Yes, it's actually the horseshoe, you know. It, it, I mean, it's, it, that's been really interesting to see happen. You know, the, the anti-Semitism around when you see that there's enough people who are retweeting fascists mm. because they've got stuff about Israel that, that they feel they they can align themselves with and actual proper proper Nazis and uh, out there that, that, and so this sort of co-mingling is really interesting but but like I say the kippers were I you know were like forerunners of that because don't it, and especially that sort of leader thing you know don't diss the leader the leader the leader is perfect and his judgment is inviolable and who are you anyway? You're just some bloody comedian. You know, and they, that idea that I'm not entitled to opinion, but they are, there's a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> talking about being a bloody comedian, mm. we have been talking about the, um, you know, the kind of challenge of comedy around yeah. around Brexit. And I think that the, one of the, the problems is if you've got somebody who is just, they don't have a character, it's just them, they're angry remainers, it can seem quite one note, unless you're yep. very clever about it. And yep. I was thinking about what, maybe what you were doing and the sort of Alan Partridge yeah. Brexit show that's coming up. Do you think you've got a lot more sort of comic latitude to make points if you've got this character? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you don't have to say, you know what I think about that? You don't have to qualify any of it. You can just bowl in with an opinion and then, uh, like a modest proposal, you can start somewhere, start somewhere that sounds reasonable or sounds like it fits an opinion you'll have heard and then, and then run it all the way through. So, yeah, absolutely being in character 
is enormously uh, helpful for for talking about subjects like this. Is uh, it? I mean, I, the thing is, is when I started doing it, the landlord he was kind of proper up yours Delors stuff. I mean, it's how long I've been doing it. Um, <laughs> but that was kind of that was in the sun, but it wasn't a mainstream political opinion. And I used to have people. Ten years ago, people were going, why are you still doing that? And I'd be like, or five years ago, why are you still talking about this? Because it's not, not gone away. And if anything, it's it's gone deeper, main, it's gone more mainstream. I mean, because of the way immigration's been presented. Just to have that kind of intimate relationship with a character that you've yeah. invented for that amount of time. You were <laughs> saying earlier, like, he's starting to feel this way or whatever. Is it like he's in your head all the time? No, no, not at all. No, no, no. It just, it, I mean, he's feeling that way because that's the best way to g- generate jokes out of the subject. Okay. Um, I, that's always been my... Uh, priority when writing it how do we make this funny i mean i i had a thing a thing in last year's show where i kind of (laughs) which was all about how um we need to get back to the old ways that sort of thing and uh uh, and that we needed to go back to 1956 well 1955 is the last time this country was truly happy with itself (laughs) as we know it's 1945 well well well, no because because, uh, and the shopping list would be you know because we got ourselves an NHS got ourselves a welfare state because in a way the landlord's quite old labour like old 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 labour from from you know 1945 in a way because he's pro NATO and he's like the idea of atom bombs but, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know uh, nuclear warfare is the ultimate conflict resolution uh, option um, uh, uh, and, and so so you know 1955 but with ABS power steering pausable flat screen HD TV <laughs> wet wipes and inhalers for the weaklings right it's, 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 it's the stall he's setting out but that led to the that led to the shows I mean with the show last year show is called let's go backwards together uh, and there's a song that goes with that and that's the, the sort of thread of the whole thing and, and um the my marketing guy said you do know that that's lgbt don't you <laughs> as, as, as an acronym. oh brilliant right fantastic we get another joke out of it i mean i'm always trying the, the priority was to make it funny but as it's much easier with the character to sort of to feed the subjects in and turn the handle and see what comes out because marcus brigstock's talked about this although i you know the telegraph picked it up and ran with it and said dreary remainer comics in blah 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 it's just more helpful and that but that that applies to any topic for me uh, as well as the current situation and also, you are doing your bit for British industry. Well, yeah. With uh, drums. Yes, well, I have a uh, drum manufacturing business that um, I founded with this brilliant uh, drum maker. In, and we're based in Stockport. And we had three people on the factory floor two years ago. And we've got 14 now, taking on apprentices, the whole thing. But we are now, we don't know what's going to happen next. And the British market isn't big enough to sustain that kind of business at all. You need to be, a, you need to be global. You need Europe I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about France is art spending is so high. There's a fantastic churn in um, in music retail in France because because the money's there. The, 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 so those markets we need access to. Um, we have some parts made abroad. We assem- we build the, the centre of the product, the shell here. It's all designed here. But we have parts coming from abroad because there's things you can't get made here affordably. So when, if when we go over the, if there's a hard Brexit and we've got to do point of origin for every single thing, it's going to generate a colossal amount of paperwork, a colossal amount of customs stuff that at the moment we don't have to worry about. How are we going to pay for that? Well, we're going to have to put that into the price and the consumer will pay for that. And that will make us less competitive and is a, you know, and or be just a colossal ball ache um, and, uh, and you know this is my money in this company we've not borrowed any money it, it, it really matters to me so when, when, on, when on Twitter you get so you, you BBC lefty Lib Lab Con uh, Metropolitan Elite of course you'd say this again. no I know I have a manufacturing business I know exactly what I'm talking about in this respect because when people talk about business don't business doesn't like uncertainty when you read that in the paper I am my business doesn't like this uncertainty i can you know hand on my heart swear that that's the truth it's not it's not a received opinion via a paper it's me and my partners going shit what do we do luckily we have a distributor based in europe so once we get the stuff into europe you know once we're out of the eu once we get into the stuff into europe we're fine but but at the moment we we don't have to fill in any you know there's none of this ball ache 
So good for comedy, bad for drums. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think most definitely. Mm. But then, you know, uh, uh, I, I gig, in, gig in Europe, but sometimes and you go play to Brussels and Paris and Germany, there's show, gigs to do there. How will that change? Will I need a work permit? You know, all this sort of, all this sort of stuff. And I know lots of people in the music industry Who've, who, who say that, you know, the, the, the fantastic thing in the last 25 years has been that you don't do the carne where you list absolutely every last wing nut valve in a rock band's equipment. You don't have to do that anymore. And you're going to have, it's going to have, it, it, is it, it's going to come back, isn't it? I'm sure it is. Touring costs will go up. You know, pop music is a massive British export industry. That, that, that generates an awful amount of money for the economy and if you can't tour, you can't promote the record, you can't promote the band, if it becomes more expensive, they won't do it. And, and th- this is, this is the, the actual reality of the damn thing, you know, that, that way beyond talking about political union or, or fiscal union or any of that, the actual simple day-to-day business of doing business is now all up in the air and, it's, and, and that's as maddening as anything else. They were actually the musicians' union were at the Labour conference yeah. doing a panel with me, and they were talking exactly about this. Basically, that loads of people when you're up and coming, even if you're just like a member of an orchestra or whatever else, you suddenly get a call. It's like actually there's a position in this thing. It's going on in Berlin in a couple of days. Now we might not need tourist visas to go there, but that's still work. You know, yeah, you yeah. need to get lots of something. So basically, they're just like well, all of those opportunities will die. Yeah, and the freedom of movement thing, rather than being for what are those people like me of this great like it's the individual against the state and you yeah, get to yeah. move over borders all that. None of that for them. They're just like no, this is just basically for up and coming musicians. This is an absolute disaster for us, and it severely limits the kind of opportunities that they're going to get. Well, I, I think that we've traced the perfect Romaniac's arc there from, from jokes and anecdotes to <laughs> anger and frustration. <laughs> so. About, about orchestral music opportunities. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, li- how much of a delete is that? <laughs> I'm afraid the Halley Orchestra won't be able to get the cellist they need. <laughs> this does no. keep me up at night. <laughs> well, no, but, but simply from the, from the point of view of we're manufacturing business, and it's fuck you know like what and it's the not knowing which takes me yeah. right back to where we started if only these people that have pitched this to the country actually had a plan then we'd be able to we'd be able to accommodate that plan we'd be able to know what was coming next and we don't and i know you never can know but now we really don't know so it looks like we'll be doing our orchestral maneuvers in the dark now to peter for a short <laughs> commercial message just a gentle reminder that there's more to life than EU transitional periods and position papers, although not much more. If music, TV, books and films are your thing, or things, I suppose it should be, then you're sure to enjoy another podcast from the Romaniac Stable. Yes, I'm talking about Big Mouth, the pop culture talk show for the modern escapist. Every Saturday, Big Mouth gets Britain's best entertainment journalists together to talk about what's new and interesting to read, watch and listen to. This week they're talking about and boldly going into where several generations have already gone before in fact with the new incarnation of Star Trek. This one's on Netflix and it's called Star Trek Discovery plus about the new album by Wolf Alice and Ken Burns's epic new Vietnam documentary on BBC4. You can get Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth it'll put Liam Fox out of your mind for a whole hour guaranteed. Finally, to Brighton and the Labour Party conference, which last weekend took the bizarre step of voting not to vote on a Brexit motion. (laughs) Local parties had put forward motions about Brexit, but Momentum emailed Corbynite delegates to urge them to vote instead for crucial issues that the public care about, which meant housing, social care, NHS, rail nationalisation. The result was that the supposed government-in-waiting would not vote on the biggest political issue facing Britain, and that Keir Starmer's proposals for staying inside the single market would go unexamined. This blew up into customary rancour, with Heidi Alexander saying she was gobsmacked and the party would be a laughing stock. Meanwhile, one delegate from Hove attacked a pro-Remain march outside the conference as a disgrace because it was anti-Corbyn. Typical bloody Hove. (laughs) (laughs) Ian, was this just a sort of a bit of chicanery to kind of spare embarrassment, public division? Uh, You know, did did Labour generally not want to um, debate Brexit? And they, they, well, they basically just don't want to be pushed into actually having a, a spe- specified explicit position. So they're working on the basis of presenting a sort of spectrum of propositions to people, really. And in fact, so are the Tories, in a way. The, the weird part was I thought this week there's some sort of clarity. And you know, people have still been saying, actually, the Tories and Labour are in the same position. Actually, I really think that they're not. So my, my way of looking at it now is to imagine a sort of semicircle where you've got no deal on one hand. And on, right on the other side of the dial, you've got sort of full EEA membership, single market and customs union. 
And it seems to me that the Tories, basically, their spectrum of propositions is from no deal up to a sectoral harmonisation agreement, which sounds incredibly tedious and isn't much more fun than that. But it's the kind of thing that we've talked about before, where you basically say, look, in cars, in tech, in finance and in insurance we'll sign up to the same standards because we need to keep on sharing all of this. You know, we're just going to take whatever rules you've got, we'll, we'll work with those and we'll have these other areas. For us, we'd probably prefer it was retail. If you're Norway, you prefer that it's agriculture and fishing, fisheries where we'll, we'll do things our own way. Now, the Tory position goes from no deal up to that. That's the kind of position that sort of May was tentatively outlining. The Labour position goes from the same thing. I mean, Starmer's been saying exactly that kind of stuff. You can imagine it would be different bits of the economy that he would want to separate out, but ultimately that's what he's talking about, all the way over to the sort of full EEA membership. So that's what you've got. I think you've actually got a, a pretty decent alternate package there, and the Labour position is just not to be pushed down on details. And what's interesting about that is now suddenly, you know, people like McDonald, people like Corbyn, aren't really ruling out single market membership when they talk. You know... Keir Starmer gets up and talks about a new single market relationship, which we presume again to be the sectoral harmonisation kind of stuff. It's it's all very, very open, as open as humanly possible. And the reason for that is the same old thing, which is they basically want everyone to be able to project their hopes onto these guys. If you're, you know, from a lever, from a post-industrial town in the north, you can listen to the stuff on free movement when they say it'll end, even though probably it wouldn't under any of the arrangements that they're talking about in any real sense. If you're someone like me for a main, you can say, well, look, these guys are still open to it. Maybe they're going to push for that. Starmer seems pretty clever. He's really going to go for it. So basically, they want to be all things to all men. And you have to decide at the end of it whether they're really thinking about it in those offices or whether they're just coming out with these incredibly open, broad sentences merely as, a, as an electoral ploy to make sure that they don't have to think about it very clearly in those offices. Well, Al, it's like you were saying earlier about internal party politics. Mm. Is that, and if I was only interested in internal part, Labour Party politics and their electoral chances, this is probably the strategy I would recommend. Yeah, definitely. Don't commit, don't lose anybody. But because I'm concerned about kind of what might actually happen... I find this I find this kind of maddening and the fact that it's it's sort of it's not acknowledged. I mean obviously they're not going to acknowledge it on the conference well, floor, but nobody the supporters yeah. don't seem to acknowledge it. I mean their tricky position is this isn't conventional oppositional politics, is it, anymore? Because the because the referendum sat outside traditional political lines. That any the, the EU issue also sits outside you know, traditionally an opposition would just say, No, we oppose whatever you're doing because the government <laughs> D- doesn't know what it's doing. <laughs> How can the opposition possibly oppose it? I mean, it's 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 almost. I, I, I don't. Know, I have a, a kind of a distaste for oppositional politics because it leads to things like when the economy's performing badly, the government make excuses and the opposition cheer that the eco- economy's performing badly because it makes the government look lousy. Mm. Whereas in fact they should be going, oh no, the economy's performing badly. That the, the, the op- oppositional politics leads you into peculiar positions, I think. But in this instance, because the you know, it, it is the nailing jelly to the table problem, isn't it? What is the government's position? I don't know. It's fluid. It changes from week to week. It depends who's, who's been on the news that afternoon, you know. Uh, so no wonder it's hard for Labour. But, I mean, they've got, to, they've got to keep their options open. But like you say, what is it they're actually going to do? And Corbyn, I mean, I think Corbyn is, you know, he's sort of sphinx-like on this completely. You'll get him one day saying no to the single market. And, and, and the next day saying, well, when I said no to the single market, I meant yes. And also there's his track record on Europe. If anyone has had stuff projected onto them about Europe, it's Jeremy Corbyn. So how does this all look from across the channel? So you've got Barnier yeah. and Co. They're looking at our two main parties seem to be having a debate among themselves as if uh, the, the, the Brexit deal is a matter for internal debate only. You know, the Conservatives are certainly doing it, Labour's doing it as well. It seems to me it puts the EU in quite a comfortable position. They're thinking, well, you know, it's not as, it's not as though we've got what we were promised before the last election, which would be a very strong, united uh, majority in Parliament with the will of the people behind them, and Europe would have to respond to that. We don't have anything that it seems to me that the EU side have to respond to. They don't have any sort of moral um, re- requirement to respect the will of the British people at the moment because it's not clear what it is, because it's not clear what the two parties want. Well, aside from, uh, and aside from the fact that in this negotiation we are the much smaller part- partner, and so we're likely to get ridden. There is a, I mean, <laughs> you know, let, let's be honest now. I mean, the, the, I mean, it also, I mean, you look back at you look back at the independence referendum in Scotland. New Scotland saying we're going to do this, that, and the other. You're up. You, you're up a much bigger. You're a much bigger partner that you're about to tell to piss off. How how politically could a Cameron government have have uh, 
said to its MPs, gone to people and said, well, they, we're going to keep the Scot- Scotland will keep the pound, don't worry about it. You know, the mood would have been, no, off you go. So why that, you know, that we, we've had this experience ourselves within our own union very, very recently, and it turned out, it turned out differently. Why can't we see that possibly that, I mean, it's the fact that we barely, we, we've barely talked about the EU, what their position might be, because, because it is this permanent internal negotiation. And, uh, it, it, it seems that seems inept in itself. The idea that Europe won't go. Well, hang on a minute. Bugger off, then. There is a there's a possible improvement in this regard, but it depends how much you trust them. So McDonnell and Corbyn were both, and, and in fact the Labour position have been, they've been briefing out to journalists. Look, we've been having these chats over in Europe. We've got all these sort of left wing guys in Europe. They're really impressed by Corbyn's electoral performance. We've gone out. We've chatted to them. Corbyn starts talking about state aid. He's actually talking about it in a, in a relative, I mean, for him, a very advanced way indeed. But, you know, I'd say a relatively advanced way, saying, you know, in some countries you get away with it and in other countries you don't. Demonstrably true, wherever you look, you know, mm. whether it's French Red or ourselves nationalising the banks in 2008. And he's sort of saying, well, look, we're going to see what we can tinker with there to try and make that applicable. Now, on the face of it, that should not be a bad idea. It's quite nice to think that British politicians might think, oh, you know what, I'm going to go have a chat with Europe to find out what is doable and then come back and tell you what it is that I'm going to do once I know that it is, rather than doing speeches about what I'm going to do and then finding out whether it's, po- whether it's possible. The only thing is, is it real? Because they, what I'm so wary of is being turned into a mug. <laughs> because you basically say, well, look, maybe they're doing all of that. But maybe that's just part of Labour's sort of Position, systematic, yeah. mercurial sort of thing of just trying to keep you from really criticising them for not having a position. Well, I think, that makes it very, very difficult indeed. I think the reason, I suppose, that, that <clears throat> I find Sadiq Khan so easy to love at the moment, you know, he, he came out calling for a second referendum because he can kind of do that. Mm. You know, he's he's, well, he's, he's the, he backed down then. His guys oh. then phoned up the indie and then and gave them shit basically for, for saying that he'd done that. Said he basically just raised the prospect that he might try right. to push. For, but, but but he did but, sort of say something along those lines. But he doesn't have to triangulate like the leadership. Basically, yeah. yeah I mean, but that's the other thing is the, the amount the, the amount of kites. If you're in the <laughs> if you're if you're in the kite you political kite <laughs> political kite business, you're absolutely quids in at the moment. I can hear that song from Mary Poppins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Or we better not say any more because it'd be copyright. <laughs> well, that's our show. Before we finish, we've just got time to plug the National Stop Brexit March in Manchester on Sunday, 1st of October, on the first day of the Conservative Party conference. It's Manchester and the Brexiters have so much to answer for. Marches are gathering from 11am at All Saints Park. Go along to show them we don't want the fool's gold of Brexit oh, and that Gove won't tear us apart again. Oh, <laughs> Not my words. There's a gun to my head and they're making me say them. <laughs> Find out more at stopbrexitmarch.com. Thanks to Alf for coming in, being our special guest. It's been a pleasure, thank you. What? I've got this all off my chest, it's fantastic. <laughs> now you don't have to think about it ever again. No, my, kid, my kids are so fed up with this. <laughs> <laughs> it's your future. <laughs> and thanks as ever to Peter and Ian, the Statler and Waldorf of Brexit. We'll see you again next week. And now for the return of Reasons to be Cheerful, an idea so good that Ed Miliband has ripped it off for his new podcast. Be a guest on our show, Ed, and there's no need to get the lawyers involved. <laughs> So um, we mentioned him earlier, but for some reason I seem to be more furious about Nigel Farage than, than I have been for a very long time because he was, a, he was a crappy MEP. He's not a leader anymore. He has nothing useful to say about Brexit negotiations. His expertise is white nationalism and just mm. sort of travelling around the world talking to racists who say they're not racists. And the idea that you constantly see... I was going to see it cropping up on Twitter. There he is on the BBC or Sky News talking about Brexit negotiations, about which he has nothing to add. I was boiling with fury, and the small consolation I could take from this was that there was not a single baby born in Britain last year called Nigel. (laughs) (laughs) And I know the maternity wards are not teeming with Dorian's either, but, you know, he's killed the name. The idea that not one person just, you know, considered that name because of him. Uh, and I just sort of, it was like a very small sliver of consolation. Just, it's kind of agreed upon. I think there were also like, there were minimal Donalds. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, ba- the baby names is, is where it's at. <laughs> to sign off, here's a bit of French from listener and pop legend Rhoda Dakar of the Special AKA, The Body Snatchers, and now a busy solo career. Merci d'avoir écouté. À la prochaine! Finally, if you're supporting Romaniacs on Patreon, you know we've promised you a shout-out on the show. We can't do all 100 backers this week, so we'll do the first 40 pledges and catch up next week. So listen carefully 
as we play out with our fantastic new theme tune by Corner Shop. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our generous backers. Big Romania, as to as the pub landlord. Big Romaniacs, thanks. The very first pleasure, Dan Aywood, terrible name. As well as Sonia Lenegan, oh, exotic. Mickey Lachman, mm, sounds a touch German. Daryl Godden, mm, I don't trust you, mate. Peter Weber, Jonathan Flinton, what's wrong with John? Hey, you ponce. Dan Wentworth, Darren Newman, the mysterious Jim, I like the cut of your jib, sir. And Elizabeth Carnahan. Thanks as well to Julian Webb, Nicholas Wright, Andrew Morgan, Ed Edmondson, Philip Dorr, John Stabler, Dermot Dempsey, Karen McCormack, James Jones and Matt Lamborn. And thanks from me to uh, Sarah Carrington, Chris Brewer, Lucy Harold, Roland Dunn, E.J. Pratt, Claudia Fitzgerald, Paul Chesterman, Michael Carter, David Beecham and Simon Jones. And finally, thanks to Mark M. Smith not Marky Smith yet, plus Michael Drake, Andy Scott, Anthony Gregory, John Smith, Raymond Halpenny, Claire Morgan, Tom Clark, Robert Knapp and Vanessa Rowlands. If you didn't hear your name yet, you'll just have to listen again next week. But you're going to do that anyway, won't you? A <laughs> bientôt. <laughs> Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.